Turn with me, if you would, to Amos chapter 8, verses 7 through 14, beginning to read with verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall dwell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning, like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. Behold! The days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a famine for water, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And I shall wander from and they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but all but shall not find it. In that day the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin, the, the, sin, the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Well, these words are words about God's judgment, and they aren't happy things. We can even come, we can, I can imagine some of you might come to the church and think, oh, is he on that dark Amos again? Is there no, Where is the joy in this? Uh, but as we know that every word from God is worthy and every word of God is uh, prophetic, uh, full of promise and power. And so we see here in this passage that uh, even in God's judgment, he brings, uh, he brings a certain witness and a certain testimony. As the sermon says, God's judgment is lethal and pure. And there's a, both are, there's a purifying element to God's judgment, but just the, the expression of God's judgment, the force of it, the certainty of it, is, uh, is, uh, is very good in that it clarifies the confusions of the world because men constantly would dispute with the Lord and charge him with error, claim his day, claim his money, uh, claim his priority and his preeminence. Men would do this, but when judgment falls upon them, there's a sense in which they cannot uh, but take notice of the finality of that judgment and the power of it. And when God silences us with judgment, it's a powerful thing, it's significant, and it should catch our attention. And the fact that all that God does with, uh, the, um, with the nation of Israel in this case, which is dark and powerful and full of judgment, everything that God does with uh, Israel in this case, God can also do with us as individuals. And so we, it's a good thing for us to fear the Lord. And uh, in the... In the the worst case scenario, you see, God gives us these judgments to warn us of the final judgment, which is to come. Would it be better for him to just leave off any warnings of final judgment? 
until it came and fell, fell upon us and engulfed us and uh, swallowed us up? Or is it not better that he gave us these penultimate judgments, these warnings of judgment to come that would warn us about the final judgment? And in the vast sweep of history, we see how God has used this because um, before the coming of Christ, which is certainly magnificent and central to the flow of salvation history, before that we see this judgment upon the nation of Israel, both in two stages, first upon the northern ten tribes, then upon Judah. And, but, and then before that we see God's uh, bringing the, saving the people out of Egypt that, that was prefatory to this judgment that came upon Israel as a nation. And so we see God, these, these broad themes that God has that he brings us to. It's like a big sign that he holds up. Uh, first, the, the escape from Egypt, the salvation from Egypt, and the entering into the land and the inheritance of Israel as a, as a land. And then we see his judgment fall upon Israel, as we do here in the book of Amos and some of the other prophets. And then we see the magnificence of the rising up of Christ where Every mouth is shut with the resurrection of Christ. All the mouths that said that he was guilty of capital punishment, they were shut when he raised Christ from the dead. And they could not contend against his testimony at that time. And so he is raising up the church of Christ. We still, we still see in this world today many men that would contend with him. But in the judgment that we see falling upon Israel, in that judgment and in the final judgment, we see uh, God's power being manifested, the threat of it. And we know that after that judgment will come a, uh, a complete, a universal judgment, I mean a blessing upon this creation that God has made. And uh, from then on we shall have an eternal Sabbath, and uh, an eternal joy. So the, 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 these words of Amos are penultimate in a sense. Uh, they, 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 they come before uh, the coming of our Lord and uh, the raising up of his kingdom. Uh, but uh, in their strength and the strength of this judgment and the lethality of the judgment, it's good news for us in the sense that God will not allow unrighteousness to continue on forever. And you and I, we grovel day and night almost at seeing the unrighteousness about us. If it's not the, if it's not the, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, virus that has befallen us the last three years, it's some politician, some movement of politics that that uh, persuades hundreds and thousands to go in a different way. Uh, it, it continually bewilders me how. Anybody can read the history of the 20th century and uh, be, be tantalized by Marxism for one moment. But, but there we are. There are people. We are so confused. It's like uh, God says here with the, the famine of the word of God over the hearing of the word of God. So he's sent us a famine of hearing things that make sense, things that really happened. And it's like we, we pretend, no, Mao didn't really kill 60 million people. Uh, Hitler didn't kill uh, 7 or 10 or 12 or whatever. Uh, 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 Stalin didn't kill his, th his 30 uh, in, the, in the Ukraine. 
and the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. These things just just happen. It's just not real because I don't think it's real. And men are not men and women are not women because we say it's that way. How crazy can we be? How much do we deserve as a people the judgment that we see God bringing upon Israel at this time? As he names their sins and then says, these judgments will definitely fall upon you. So uh, this passage is about the lethality of God's judgment and yet the purity of it. And uh, it's so wonderful to gather here today for worship of the Lord in the midst of human confusion, the contortions which are those of men. Uh, God's judgment is a clarification of the fall and of the iniquity of men, and it points in the direction of God's righteousness. Now we see that this begins, this passage begins in verse 7, by God's, but when God swears, but he says, by the pride of Jacob, and that's a very confusing phrase, unless you, unless you ask a couple questions of it and you, you consider it. God says, I have sworn by the pride of Jacob. Uh, now, this, the word pride can be translated a number of ways, like the excellency of Jacob or the virtue of Jacob. In other words, men were, men were swearing in this day by the name of Jacob because uh, he was their, one of their spiritual forefathers. He was the father of the 12 tribes. And so in many ways, he was the, fourth, he was the most, uh, most prominent figure of the nation of Israel at this time. So they would swear by his name. But God says here he would, um, that he, he swears by the pride of Jacob. Now you have to ask yourself a question. Was God speaking here of pride in the evil sense or the positive sense? What, what if, God, if God identifies with the pride of Jacob, was this their spiritual pride? He wouldn't identify with that. Um, but if you, if, you, if you think about this pride in terms of the excellency of Jacob or the strength of Jacob or the, or the virtue of Jacob, what, what, was the, what was the strength of Jacob? What was the pride of Jacob? What was the excellency of Jacob? Was it not the Lord himself? And then it all makes sense. You see, you ask a few questions and it all makes sense. God is saying, I, I swear by myself. I swear by myself as the, uh, as the inspiration of Jacob as the excellency of Jacob, as the, um, uh, as the um, um, uh, wonder of Jacob. And uh, so he's saying here in terms of this judgment that, that they, they have sworn by Jacob, but they're doing wrong. God says, I swear by the excellency of Jacob to do right. And what God is going to do right is to bring judgment upon this people. And so then he says, Surely I will never forget any of their works. Now, were their works good or evil? Well, the whole point of Amos is how bad their works were. Because God says, I will never forget any of their works. Uh, shall the land not tremble for this, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. Now here we have another another kind of translation question because uh, this the river of Egypt, if it's the river of Egypt, then it's the Nile. And it's true that the Nile would, um, would flood once a year, but that was mostly good because it helped the, uh, the ag- agriculture of Egypt. It helped their, the flatlands surrounding the, 
the mighty Nile. It helped them to be fertilized uh, with uh, the sediment that God raised up. Uh, so if it's if it's that if it's that, then it doesn't really fit this because God said He's coming with judgment, and the Nile uh, was by and large a blessing for the people in terms of its nutrition. But the the problem is that the word for river can be translated also flood or a a rising of water. And uh, when you think of that, then you think of another uh, another watery thing relating to Egypt, and that's the that's the, the 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 ruin of the Red Sea as it crushed the Egyptians, and that 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 metaphor fits this far better than thinking about the Nile with its slight incline and decline of the waters uh, once a year in its season, and so. Uh, this is probably a reference when God says, shall not the land tremble for this and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it shall swell like the flood. I think a better translation, uh, I think the King James Version translates it flood. And so it shall swell uh, like the flood, uh, heave and subside like the flood of Egypt. When all of those who are opposed to God were uh, overcome by the waters of Egypt or associated with Egypt. And so the first thing that God does is he swears by himself and then he indicates that Israel's sin is clear and that he is coming for judgment. Now the second thing we see in verse 9 is that we see that when God judges, all, all reality kind of gets caught up in it. All reality acknowledges the judgment of God. He says, and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and for baldness to every head. I will make it, uh, I will make it like uh, mourning for uh, the only for an only son and its end like a bitter day. So he brings up both the judgment and then its effects upon the land. And these are very, very powerful. And God brought that both twice, once upon Assyria, when Assyria invaded the ten tribes and then when Babylon invaded uh, Judah and Benjamin. Uh, this was specifically pointed at the Assyrian invasion. And so God says, uh, this is going to happen. It shall come to pass on that day that the sun will go down at noon and darken the earth. Well, God did this a number of times in Israel's history. And most remarkably, he did it when he brought his curse down upon his only begotten son on the cross. And there in, in the midst, in the eastern region of the imperial Rome, where Rome uh, made its decrees and made everything happen that happens. All of a sudden, something happened that Rome had nothing to do with. Christ was crucified, and it became dark at midday, exactly like it says here. And these kinds of uh, these kinds of judgments happen uh, happened before. We we have uh, great storms that come upon us, and they darken the they darken the land as if it's night. I remember one time. I think I've told you before when I when I moved here, I didn't have a lot of money. We came back from Scotland. I was I was. Uh, so I was substitute teaching at one of the school districts around here. And I was that day I was teaching an elementary school class. And the class had windows like this that were fully, fully lit along one wall. And all of a sudden, this great storm came. It really, I was a little bit afraid of a tornado or something. The, the school was a strong school, so I wasn't afraid of, 
of the being destroyed in the class, but it got so dark that it was like nighttime outside. That that wasn't a special judgment of God. That was just a, a, a big storm that came upon us. But it got so dark, and the kids in the class, I think I told you about this, but the kids in the class went crazy. And the little boys ran, and they were jumping up on the windows and, and yelling to each other, and the girls were crying. And the class, they were sitting, they were more, uh, behaved more womanly, sitting in their seats and crying. And uh, I looked down and one, one, well, one, one sweet little girl had her arm around one of the real criers and said, it's okay, it'll be okay. <laughs> but all of this was brought about because of this darkness outside that God brings even in ordinary storms, much less on one of these days of great judgment upon his people. But when he judges, you see, the whole world seems to notice. And then thirdly, God brings this prophecy in verse 11, which is one of the more more amazing descriptions of his judgment in the scriptures, so that it's been preached on again and again and again. And that is, he says that that he will, uh, in the way, in in the manner of making the feasts, turn into mourning and their songs and lamentations, making them wear sackcloth, making them cut their hair off their head because they're in such abject mourning. Um, He says in verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing, of hearing the words of the Lord. And the consequence of that is that they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to south, they shall run to and fro seeking something. Here it says the word of the Lord. But when he says that, he means that, that they, they shall seek um, order and sense, which the word of God brings. But he says they will not find it. Is there anything that more marks our civilization today than a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord? It's almost graphic today. I, 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 you know, I listen to a lot of conservatives, books and things on television, um, things on YouTube. And the conservatives, at least they can tell that there's something wrong. Uh, the liberals think, the liberals sort of gleefully um, rejoice that uh, Detroit has been emptied, that it's lost half its population, that San Francisco now has not uh, dog feces on the street, but human feces in great abundance. They, re- they, they, they get excited about this. Uh, they, 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 they think they, they cannot see that their policies have any connection here. So they kind of gleefully egg it on. Yeah, come on, bring it on. It's wonderful. And uh, they, they have no idea, apparently, that it's the rebellion against God's word and against God's name that has brought all this about as a, a mighty consequence of man's rebellion against him. The thing we need more than anything else is the hearing of the word of the Lord. And every man who has ever been converted, I've, I've talked to a number of people this past week, sometimes you go for six months and not hearing any testimonies, or stories of salvation. But uh, this past week, I've, I've heard two or three accounts by people that I've run into about the power of God 
in their salvation. And the common denominator between all of them is that no matter how God entered their life, no matter what thought it was or the theological idea it was that arrested their minds, the most, the most uh, prominent and poignant aspect of it was that God gave them a sense of his truth in their body, in their brain. It was, a, it was so powerful that it was a kind of emotional effect upon them that by the movement of the Holy Spirit alone, they were convinced that God existed and that Jesus was his son and that they must turn their lives over to him. And it's amazing. There are, there are apparently are thousands of ways that we get converted to God. But the end result is that we all end up at the feet of Jesus Christ. He is the great redeemer. He was sent on a holy mission by his heavenly father. And we disdain that mission to our detriment, to our destruction. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon us and this Christ that meant nothing to us a moment before, all of a sudden we are convinced to the, to the, to the, to the, uh, the, the depth of our personalities, to the depth of our lives, we are convinced that this Jesus is the Christ and that he died for us and he rose again for us and that the locus or the, the center of our future hope must be in this Jesus Christ. But in this picture that, that Amos teaches and preaches, and portrays here, there will be a famine of the hearing of the word of God. People will not hear these magnificent things. They'll pass by every day. It will be a monotony of unbelief and deafness and boredom. Because the glory of our creation, the glory of our Lord lives, which is the Lord, shall not be heard and shall not be seen. We shall be as people cut off. Now he compares this to a famine. But he says it's not food or water that we'll miss. It's the hearing of the word of the Lord. None of us can do very well without food and water. All of us understand what a famine of water is or what a drought is so that we don't have enough water to drink or perhaps no water to drink. We begin to get delirious. We stumble here and, for, here and there to and fro, and God says that's what will happen Happen to people in verse 12. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Do people, are people not wandering to and fro today? One of them discovers some word of Hinduism that excites them, another of transcendental meditation, uh, another of hedonism, uh, of uh, making the, the superficial joys of this world, their excitement. Perhaps, they, perhaps they're excited about something like nudism or some other <laughs> crazy thing that is here or there, but they run after that, and they, they run after it as if it's God, as if there's something magnificent there, powerful, worthy of surrendering your life to, but it's nothing. And these same people that run after this, even as they run, sadly, uh, it's a torturous thing, but people uh, are committing suicide. The very people that, that 
swear that they have found something valuable in life, the consequence of that is their self-destruction. And we stand back and we think, why, why, why can't people see that if they would but turn to the Lord and seek his face and ask him to shine upon them, that all of that which they seek can be found with the God of creation, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that are, can be found every day in the Bible. But in this case, you see, they cannot hear the word of God because there's a famine of the hearing of the word of God. And Amos says this will be a certainty. He's prophesying. This is a prophecy of Amos. If it wasn't true, then they could stone Amos and be righteous about it because they would manifest or prove that he was a false prophet. But uh, this did not happen because Amos' prophecy was true and Israel was vanquished from the land. Uh, in history, <clears throat> it's a, an awful thing that... Uh, uh, God uh, destroyed uh, his own people in this way, or so many of them at least, who turned from him. Um, uh, God's warning to Israel becomes all the more stark when we see that these ten tribes were vanquished off the face of the earth and really lost. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, rumors and uh, legends about what happened to these ten tribes. But when nothing is known for certainty because God's judgment wiped them off the face of the earth. The other two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, were brought back into the land by Ezra and Nehemiah. And they were the ones who there were there on Pentecost Day and heard the gospel preached and the languages that from whence they came. Because they were at that point in time, they were driven all over the Mediterranean and uh, they were not located just in the land of Israel. And so, but they heard the they heard the power of the preaching of Peter and the others, the other uh, apostles there on Pentecost Day, because the Spirit of God moved upon the land. Brothers and sisters, um, uh, we need the the movement of the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God does not move upon us, if the Spirit of God does not bring us, give us a capacity to hear the word of God, then we are deaf too, and we are lost. We desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit to move upon us. How many people today pray for the Holy Spirit to affect their lives? How many people cry out for God, God, give me your spirit so that I might hear, that I might see, that you might make more sense to me and my brain and my mind, that you would not let me wander to and fro across the face of the earth without finding the answers that are there, uh, hidden in thy word. How many people pray that? People today are not urgent about the Spirit of God. We were talking about this a little bit before the church service today, about how important the Spirit of God is for our lives. And when we think about the world in this regard, we can see it's an obvious place where the Spirit of God is quiet, where the Spirit of God does not seem to be moving people very much. But what about the church of God? Where is the Spirit of God in the church, in the American church, in the church worldwide? 
It seems to be existing mostly today in places where there is abject persecution, but in places of America, like America, the preaching has been weakened, the listening has been weakened, the churches have been weakened, the creeds and the confessions have been weakened. The people can hardly bear anything that God says to them that they ought to uh, obey and modify their lives by. They can hardly bear it. Does God say that you should have elders in your church? Well, we can find a better way. Does God say that the Sabbath day should be kept holy before his face? Oh, well, we've got better ideas. God must not have heard of the NFL and all the excitement that can be brought to bear by men uh, fully grown and, and, uh, and uh, grafted with much strength and muscle beating each other to death <laughs> over this ball that won't even roll in a straight direction. You know, it's crazy, but that's where we are. But there's a better way, and that is the way of Christ. Uh, verse 14 closes this message, um, and, and Amos says, those who swear by the sins of Samaria, these are just things that people would say. These were ways of speaking in that day. I swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan. As your God lives, O Dan. Now Dan was the northernmost, uh, one of the northernmost tribes. And uh, then, as the way of Beersheba lives, Beersheba was one of the southernmost uh, cities in Egypt. So people would take these places, and it's sort of like New York City. Uh, Frank Sinatra sang, New York, New York. So they were singing in this day, Beersheba, Beersheba, Dan, Dan, uh, the sin of Samaria. But, but God says through uh, Amos, he says, uh, the, the people are swearing by all of these, the, all of these entities in, in the earth uh, who, that are of no consequence, and nothing that they say shall work. They all shall fail, it says at the end of verse 14, they, all, they shall fail and never rise again. But who, who can make us rise again? Who does exist? Who does have power? The God of the Bible. And if we swear by him, we have a virtuous oath. And God begins this whole thing by swearing by himself, by the pride of Jacob, that this is going to happen. Brothers and sisters, God's judgment is lethal. It is deadly. It is powerful. It is certain. God tells us that he, in Psalm 1, God tells us he will judge iniquity even in this world. But then he tells us in other parts of the Bible that he will bring about a final judgment at the end of time. We must all avoid that at all costs. And how do we avoid it? By not having a famine of the word of God when it comes to Christ, but having an efficacious hearing of the word of God as God lifts up the banner of Christ before us. And in that banner, in that Christ, should we not see all of our hope and all of our needs, all of our sin bearing, all of our needs to bear sin in that Lord Jesus Christ who put on a crown of thorns, who was crucified at the, at the cross. Shall we not have all our needs of righteousness met and fulfilled? Oh, the righteousness of Christ, the beauty of Christ. Do we not yearn in this life to be free of the bondage of sin so that we no more have to be burdened by our own lackadaisical approach to Christ and the law of God? 
won't it be wonderful in that day when we are perfected above and we freely do the things that God wants us to do and we find in our loins an excitement about doing righteousness instead of a boredom. Christ can accomplish all that in us by uh, bringing us to his Father, inspiring us with the greatness of God the Father through the Son and through the Holy Spirit. These two great agencies of redemption. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might be afraid of the lethality of thy judgment. We pray that even though we do not see it today in in a demonstrable way, as if there was an army approaching us uh, that was going to slay all of those who refused the name of Christ, thy way is far more subtle than that, O Lord. Thou dost call us, thou dost advertise thy name, and yet thou dost not force us into these things. But in the final day there shall be a day of force. But thou wilt not force us to the gospel, but thou thou wilt force us into judgment. Like so many cattle, that are, being, uh, that are being driven to the slaughterhouse to be destroyed. And our destruction, O Lord, or the destruction of that day will not be an unworthy destruction. We shall rejoice in it because in the destruction of the human sin and the rebellion against thy face, there shall be a clean path behind it. It's like a storm that passes and the, the weather and the atmosphere clears and we can smell the, the crispness and the purity of the atmosphere, because righteousness now rules. And so we pray, O Lord, that we might get a foretaste of this through our conversions, through our justification and through our sanctification, and especially through our enjoyment of thy heavenly kingdom, even here upon the earth, that thy kingdom might come here on earth, even as it is in heaven, and especially into our hearts. Bless us, O Lord, with the gospel of Christ and its power, and help us to avoid the lethality of thy wrath. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.